From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the Datebook Podcast. I'm Peter Hartlob here with senior digital A&E editor Maricar Mendoza. Thanks for coming in, Maricar. And you hosted an Oscars event last night. Yeah, it was super fun. Uh, it was our first Datebook pre-Oscars party. And um, there was a lot of people there. I was really kind of amazed. It was like a, a packed house. So it was you, uh, Mick LaSalle, our movie critic? Yes, longtime movie critic, Mick LaSalle. Um, he was joined by columnist and pop culture enthusiast Otis Taylor Jr. And style and pop culture writer Tony Bravo, who has definitely helped us in the past with uh, Datebook coverage of the red carpet at our local galas and other major award shows. And that's a fun mix of personalities. It's also in our new event space in the first floor of the Chronicle. Yeah, that's a, it's a really awesome space. We're going to be doing a lot more events, um, I'm hoping monthly with Datebook. Uh, this event was called Datebook Talks Oscars, and um, it was for our Chronicle subscribers. Yeah, I, I love this space. It's got a speakeasy vibe because there's sort of these two doors that blend in with the wall. Um, for years and years, we rented out the space to other people, and now we're having events there, and I'm I'm very excited about that. Yeah, this one even had a red carpet. We had a cutout <laughs> of a golden trophy. It wasn't exactly an Oscar, but uh, people were able to do a red carpet photo. We had popcorn, beer and wine. It was a real. It was actually a party. Yeah. So look out for future events with Datebook and throughout the Chronicle. I decided not to edit the conversation, so it's longer than the usual Datebook podcast. Most Datebook podcasts are time for your dog walk. This one might be better for like a a short DMV wait or a car trip, something like that. But I enjoyed the whole conversation. It sounds like you had a really good time. Yeah, it was absolutely hilarious. I I think we laughed a lot on stage. The audience was was great. They had some great conversations. We probably could have talked forever. I know the audience members enjoyed it, and I know our listeners are going to enjoy it as well. Datebook Podcast, thanks for listening. Thank you so much again for all you guys coming in and spending your Wednesday night with us. I am Mari Carmendoza. I'm the Senior Digital Arts and Entertainment Editor for Datebook here at the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, I wanted to introduce y'all to a new addition to our Datebook team as well, Rob Morris. He's also a Senior Arts and Entertainment Editor with Datebook. He just started in January, so and, and comes from Houston, so that's why I said y'all. <laughs> so welcome. All right, well, so tonight we're going to dish on the upcoming Oscars coming up this Sunday. And so I'm going to introduce you all to our esteemed panelists. I'm going to start over here with Tony Bravo, our style writer, also writes about pop culture and has many a times pitched in to help with red carpet coverage for all of our major galas locally and big awards like the Oscars. Thanks for having me. We also have East Bay columnist and also pop culture enthusiast Otis Taylor Jr. And of course, last but not least, we have our longtime Chronicle movie critic, Mick LaSalle. 
so emphasis on long time. When did you start with the Chronicle? I started, my first day was September 23rd, 1985. Wow. Yeah. My first article in the Chronicle was September 18th, 1985. And it was all movie criticism? No, no. I was hired when I was first at the Chronicle. Uh, it, it was a very weird assignment because the, the job was that I had to write about entertainment because the entertainment editor was the one that I hit it off with in interviews. But I couldn't express, the, 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 the constraint was I couldn't express an opinion about anything. So I had to write about entertainment, but I couldn't say anything about movies or, or plays or anything because it would then enrage whoever was the critic. So it was a very hard thing. So I was, I was basically a columnist who couldn't express an opinion. And that was kind of a problem. And then um, it, when I was bombing at that, because, because, well, first of all, because I wasn't particularly good at being a columnist in that way, at least, but also uh, because it was an impossible assignment, they started putting me on movies, but they would put me on movies that were really bad so that if the review I wrote wasn't any good, they wouldn't have to run the review. Oh, yeah. that's a really then, interesting trick. Yeah, yeah, because there used to be a lot of movies that would not have screenings, and so you, you know, you, if, if the review's not good, you don't have to run it. Yeah, that's how they did it. So how many Oscars have you covered? Did you, were you able to cover the 86? No, no, no. It, the Chronicle didn't really make a fuss about the Oscars for a very long time. Uh, we would run, there would be a fashion article, but that would be it. We, we wouldn't, maybe, you know, they'd run Wire or something like that. So, and, and so I didn't cover the Oscars at all. And then even in the late 90s, when I, I used to be on, uh, in addition to being in the Chronicle, I used to be on Channel 7. And I, I, I would really have the night off and I would host a gala at Channel 7. That was fun. But so it was only starting around 1999 that we started taking the Oscars seriously. So maybe 20, something like that. Wow. wow. Yeah. Um, so that actually makes me think about how everyone kind of preps for the Oscars. I think this is the first time Datebook has actually hosted a pre Oscar event here at the Chronicle, which is really cool. So again, this is the first. You guys are the first. <laughs> and I know that before I started covering Oscars myself, because I, I was in Los Angeles before I came up here for this job, and I covered the Oscars down there. But um, before that, it was really like hanging out, maybe having a party with some friends. Yeah. Do you guys still, like, do you guys go to parties, Oscar parties or no. anything like that? <laughs> no, I start watching the red carpet at like 3 a.m. the day before, and there is no room in that for me to have a party. I am um, I, I'm reviewing the collections from the major designers. I am uh, talking to stylists that I know about who might be wearing what. I am anticipating all of the glory and hopefully some of the travesties that happen on that red carpet. Everybody has a stylist now. It's nowhere near as much fun as when, like, Bjork was showing up in a swan outfit and giving birth to an egg. But thank you-know-who. We've got Lady Gaga this year. Oh. Now, if only we could get Cher to show up, too. It would be a guaranteed red carpet good night for me. Do you, do you think Lady Gaga is going to put on a spectacular outfit, or is she going to keep it uh, mundane like her movie role? So first of all, as a gay man, any criticism of Lady Gaga is technically a hate crime, if you address it to me. (laughs) 
No, what I really hope is that Madonna shows up and goes, I was never nominated for Evita. That would be, that would be like the ultimate Lady Gaga moment. But can we spill the tea on her? Her fiance and her just broke up like five days before the Oscars. I hope she shows up in full mourning for Karl Lagerfeld in a black Chanel shroud. I actually immediately started thinking of that moment in A Star is Born where she goes up and I'm like, oh, please don't have anybody piss themselves on stage. <laughs> spoiler Sorry, is alert. Is that a spoiler? <laughs> um, but no, actually, this is a great segue. I was going to talk about how for many folks, the um, red carpet is really kind of, you know, what you go in to watch. And that starts really early for us. We start tuning in yeah. really early for that. And uh, Tony, how have you seen the red carpet like spectacular evolve over the years? Uh, well, first of all, I have to give a lot of credit to the woman that I think invented the red carpet as a event, as a program, and as a business, Joan Rivers, the late and great. She was so influential for me, knowing that I wanted to write about aesthetic things, knowing that I wanted to tell stories about fashion, because she had such a sense of humor about it. She had a sense of fun. I don't think that coverage like Jones could happen today. She was very frank about uh, things like people's size. Um, she was incredibly critical of people's looks. I try and keep it to just being analytical and critical of the dresses themselves and never to bring in my personal history with any of the stars. Um, but I'm not Joan Rivers. I don't have a whole ton of personal history with these people. So that makes it a lot easier. It's also really become a business. You know, fashion is a multi-trillion dollar a year industry globally. And the red carpet is the best campaign. Chanel, Gucci, Dior, any of the major or even some of the minor houses can get. If you get a Lady Gaga, if you get a, um, a nominee, if you get a presenter wearing one of your gowns, uh, that is money in the bank for you, for your perfume business for your cosmetics business, for your ready-to-wear line. Um, that's the biggest change that I've seen over the last uh, 20 years. I've really been following it closely. And, well, it's a, big it's a big platform to make a statement, and there are a lot of new statements that are being made these days. I mean, we're, what, is, what are we expecting? What's the next hashtag here on the red carpet, do you think? Well... Last year at the Golden Globes, in reaction to Me Too, there was the red carpet blackout where uh, women and some men dressed entirely in black as a reaction to what was breaking wide open in Hollywood with Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and how long do we have? It's a very long list of badly behaving men. And I think, and we've also had um, certainly a history of hashtag activism about um, underrepresentation of minorities. I'm hoping the hashtag is an Oscars so dull. Like that might be what happens. We don't have a, we don't have a host. The presenters are all over the map. It's, uh, I don't know. What, what do you think, Otis? I, I mean, in the movie nominations seem pretty dull too. Uh, I, I think the action for me around the Oscars is on Twitter is the conversations that people are having with each other about. And for me, resonated last year was Me Too, but also the Oscar So White hashtag. Um, and I think this year we're getting to a place, um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss that, because i got questions for you, Meg. Oh, do you want to jump to that question now? <laughs> go, go do it. So, all right, here's my question. Is this the year that Spike Lee finally finally wins 
best director? You mean instead of like 1989 when he should have won it, or, yes. or, or even actually, I think 2002. Uh, I thought 25th Hour was the best movie of that year. It's oh, just yeah. a movie that, that very few people, movie. yeah, Fantastic. one person saw it. This is what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I don't think this is the year he wins. No, I think, no. I think, no, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be uh, Alfonso Cuarón, and I, and I think that you can thank Donald Trump for it because. What ha- you know, th- there's, an ext- there's a lot of sympathy for a Mexican movie because you, you have Donald Trump with his Mexican obsession. And I think it's a reaction. I really do. Okay. So I did not read your review. But it took me Thank like you. three times to get through that film. I'm going to talk I about sleep-inducing. I hear that a lot. <laughs> now, that movie, well, I, I've been saying... I. I I'm going to say it in print, but I've been saying it to friends, and some of you have heard this already. But I, I think of that movie as a, like I, I call that as a colonoscopy movie, because it, it's a, it, well, no, because it's a, it's a movie that puts audiences into such a trance that you could actually sneak in a team of gastroenterologists to give people a colonoscopy, and at the end of the movie, nobody would say, "What's that?" I oh, mean, what when an I, image! When I finished watching that movie. I, I was expecting to see my doctor in the lobby telling me whether I can, whether I can come back in five years or ten. It, it's that kind of movie. Um, but I will say, though, it's a weird movie to be a Netflix movie because if you are watching it at home or if you're watching it on anything, on a, anything but a really big screen, the movie makes no sense at all. Um, I saw it, you know, under, I, like, I, you know, as a captive. You know, I saw it in a screening but I did see it on a very big screen. And so I wound up giving it, I think, a better review than I should have, but because I thought the last hour was really good. But the first 75 minutes are just so slow. Uh, at one point, you know, she's lying there. She's lying there. They're playing dead. And it's like, this is what you're doing to the audience. Yeah. I was actually going to ask if there are any films that you... That now, looking back on it, would you change the little man rating on him? Yeah, that's the one. I, I think that I, uh, I think I should have given it a little man interested based on the cinematography and and because it really is amazing as a thing to look at. But giving it, a, I gave it like a grudging clapping man, but I should have given it a very enthusiastic bad review. Yeah. Those are usually the, your best ones. The Man, they're great. Oh, no, I don't mean like, in, like enthusiastic about trashing it. I mean, I, th- I should have been really, really, really nice, but said it was no good. Yeah. yeah. But the enthusiastic bad reviews, those are fun to write, yes. If Roman doesn't win, who do you think will swoop in? I mean, do you think there'll be like that Moonlight La La Land moment at the end? Oh, or, yeah, or, or um, what was it, too? Brokeback Mountain oh, was supposed right. to win and, and Crash won. Um, I'm still recovering from that one, quite frankly. Yeah. In an industry filled with gay people, how did Brokeback Mountain not win that year? I, I don't know. I, I would say that, that it's, it's possible Black Klansman, just as possible. Green Book. Uh, those are two movies that people don't hate. And that's a good thing because, because people... You see, so far, since they've been having ranked voting, uh, half, more than half the time, 
the thing that's the favorite on opening day loses because people make sure not to vote for it in their top four, and so when ranked voting comes around. So the things that are like second most popular or, or things that are like not obviously the one that's going to win can win, but I think if it was going to be Green Book or Black Klansman, right now we'd know it. I think by now we'd know. So I think it is going to be Roma. But if it's not, it's going to be those two. Do you want to chime in? Well, Tony was pointing out that people hated Green Book. Not everybody liked Green Book. Green Book, I know, had some problematic issues with uh, the family involved who were not consulted. Al Shirley's family, yeah. yeah. But then also, for me, it, it just seemed that... So the Negro motorist Green Book, which... The, the movie's based on. I mean, that was something seminal for people um, traveling the South, um, the 40s, 50s, 60s, the era of segregation. And it just seemed like it was a joke or these hotels were un- unkempt and, and not well-maintained. And that's not the case. And that's how the book made it seem, or the movie made it seem. And uh, I, I thought it was a fine film you know, haha, buddy comedy, but it also felt that here's the white savior. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> it seemed like that was uh, what comes through, and that's you know, Vigo's. Uh, he's nominated for what best actor? He's not best actor. Yeah, and you know, I thought it was a pleasant film. I went to see it with my buddy. I laughed. You know, I really liked it. I I don't know. I really liked it, and Vigo really convinced me that he was Italian for that whole time. Yeah. So I was kind of amazed. Yeah, he convinced me. He, more importantly, he even convinced me that he's Italian. And I have, you know, I was saying I have an uncle Dominic, an uncle Nunzi, an uncle Vito, <laughs> uh, that's Uncle Vic, Uncle Jerry, Uncle Tony. Was it Tony the Lip? He wasn't the lip, but Tony the lip. Yeah, so no, he 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 would he would fit. What I also like, he's not only convinced me he was Italian, but he convinced me that he was Italian in the 1960s. And I have a dim memory of what people were like in the 1960s, and he had it down. I have to say, I'm also Italian, and I still believe that that man is from Middle Earth. He did not sell me on Italian. (laughs) Yeah. So talking about predictions, though. And I know we had a, you know, your spread of yeah. predictions um, in print. I, I'm sure you guys have seen his predictions already. Yeah. How do you go about predicting that kind of stuff, knowing what you know, too? Because you also know, like, I have no idea about this rink voting thing that you just talked about. Like, I kind of get it, but yeah. don't get it. And so, really, like, how do you come about bringing up your predictions? Honestly, do we, do we want, is it, is it okay honest to be honest? Here. I just look and look at the Vegas odds. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, and then I have a certain, well, okay, I look at the Vegas odds for things like Best Picture because there's no way of predicting Best Picture, and I look at it for, for the things that are not the acting categories. And then I, I look at what's nominated. For example, in foreign film, it, it's interesting that Cold War is also nominated for Best Director, and I know how they vote in the foreign film category. It's different from the other categories because you in that category you have to have seen all five movies and you have to prove it by going to Academy screenings. So you have to ask yourself, in that case, in the case of best foreign film, I ask myself, what would somebody say if, they, if they're the kind of person who would sit through five foreign movies? Which is the kind of movie, you know, what movie they'd like. But for the acting categories, I have my own system. And, because, and it's based on um, historical patterns. 
and I usually stick with that. And because they, they, they follow the, the one big thing about the Academy Awards and, and the, the uh, I think Best Actress violated it last year, but it almost is it, it's consistent from like 1929 till now, is that if you play somebody who is not like yourself, if it is very clear that you're playing somebody who's completely different, like Viggo Mortensen or even more like, you know, becoming Dick Cheney or somebody famous that really helps you win. And if you play somebody who is like yourself, whether even if it's great, like Betty Davis and All About Eve or, or, or anything like that, if you're running against somebody who is in that kind of chameleonic mode, you always, always lose. So like, for example, uh, Heath Ledger, who was wonderful in Brokeback Mountain, but he acts just like Heath Ledger. He loses, even though he's wonderful, he loses to Philip Seymour Hoffman that year who played Capote. They were both great, but you can make a case for either one. But it's always like that. The wrestler, you know, he loses to uh, uh, Sean Penn playing Harvey Milk. It's like that. That's what people like in the Academy, at least. Tony, Otis, do you guys get in the game of trying to predict winners? Oh, absolutely. But I have to say, mixed system blew my mind when he explained it to me, especially in the best actress category where, I mean, I feel I've always felt like that's been one of the categories that people have been the most invested in because of the way we kind of turn these actresses into icons. Um, my prediction, I, I think, is going to stick pretty closely to, to your formula. I'm, I'm betting on Olivia Coleman if I had to place any money. See, the, the reason why... Wasn't that yeah. your vote? She's not a queen in real life? Yeah, well, no, because I think that, that most of the people in the Academy are American, and when we see a British actress playing a queen, we just figure that it's an English person doing something English. You know what I mean? So, but we've got good precedent for queens winning in that category. Yeah, that's true. I don't think it'll be her, but it could be if it's, if it's not Glenn Close. But I think it's going to be Glenn Close. I, Glenn think Close I think you've evolved on this because you told me you didn't think Glenn Close could win when we, when we did the podcast. Yeah, you're right. I was wrong then. Yeah, uh, yeah you're right. So I, thought, I really shouldn't be putting down any money until like the last possible minute. Yeah. Well, we did the, we did the initial reactions podcast where I was pontificating off the top of my head, but then we did the actual predictions podcast. We have to milk these podcasts for as many podcasts. And now we're having the Academy Awards podcast, actually, for people who are listening. So, uh, yeah, so I, I definitely amended it because, you know, like, like last year, it should, have been, um, it should have been Margot Robbie for Tanya Harding. She checked all the boxes. Oh, agreed completely. In addition to being great in the movie. But she was, she, the, the way to win the Academy Award for Best Actress is to be under 35, play somebody who's totally not like yourself, and be nominated for the first time. So what you're saying is you think Margot Robbie is capable of breaking a rival's knee? Uh, well, I, well, no, I, I'm thinking that, that we don't think of her in that way, but then we see her on screen and we believe it, so therefore it's a chameleonic performance. There we go. Yeah, but she should have she won. This year there are really, I, I think, my, I would argue that there are no chameleons this year, uh, unless you do count Olivia Coleman. And if there's no chameleons, then it's kind of up for grabs. And, and I think it'll probably be Glenn Close. I'm, I'm going to watch because I want to see how many upsets Vice has. I think that's a terrible film. I agree with you. And Except me. Vice. 
it upset me a great deal. Oh well, yeah. Dick, I don't need to Dick see Cheney's the hero's evil. journey of Dick Cheney. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's just. But I thought, I thought Christian Bale was yeah. good. Yeah, he was good, yeah. But it was choppy film. It felt disjointed. And then I mean, Amy Adams was okay as. Yeah, she was okay. That she was just totally fine. But it, no, I, I think it's a bad film too. Um, yeah, you know the the problem is he tried to make a movie. Santa McKay, the writer director, he tried to make a movie. That was a lot like The Big Short, and yeah. but The Big Short had a was a really had a real great structural innovation because by concentrating on a team of people who it was very important to them that the, that the financial system implode for them to be proven right, it made you root for the collapse of the financial system. So you had a, a rooting interest in a collapse of the financial system. And that was really clever because otherwise it would be a depressing thing to watch. But when we watch Vice, we don't look forward to the to the war in Iraq. Oh. And, and, and we Lester also Halliburton. Yes. Well, but, hell, yeah. And we also know the rise or the implications of. I mean, people are still dying yeah. because of that war and um, the rise of ISIS because of yeah. that UN speech, which right. I thought we needed we needed to play that up even more. Um, and then it was just weird seeing uh, Tyler Perry as Colin Powell. Yeah. Yes, yes. You were thinking that he was going to bust out some Medea. Exactly. I, know, I, was, I was waiting yeah. for that moment yes. where Medea like showed up in the Oval Office. Yeah. Is that Powell. the next Tyler Perry movie, Medea? Medea goes House? to Washington. Yeah, I would love that. I have to say too. Am I the only person that thinks that Christian Bale solely takes film roles now based on whether or not he gets to either gain or lose a tremendous amount of weight? I mean, has anyone looked into this? That man's colon and liver and all of his internal organs must be suffering. Like, you have no idea. I mean, he dropped all that weight for The Machinist and for that terrible boxing movie that he won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for. And he gained all this weight for... American Hustle a few years ago and gained all this weight from Vice. I mean, I'm just worried about him. I wonder, if, how many people in this room have seen The Machinist, even know what we're talking about? Okay. Yeah, this is a movie, I'm not saying it's worth seeing, but it's worth watching like 20 minutes of just to see what we're talking about because he lost so much weight in this movie. He, he, he well, put it this way. He lost like 60 pounds and he wasn't fat to begin with. And so that he was, I was watching that movie and I didn't know it was him. I didn't know it was him. He was, it was unbelievable. He looked like he got, like he walked out of a concentration camp. I don't know how he did it. He said his, his diet was he, he ate one apple a day. That's what he did. Yeah. And I write about fashion and I thought he was too thin. So that says something right there. He's nuts. So I keeping on this train about talking about movies, I wanted to talk about the Oakland movies that Oak did Town. really well yes. last year. Um, in the Sunday Pink, if y'all picked it up, we talked about that, how Oakland had a really epic year in film. But what happened to it during awards season? Any thoughts? Well, there's a great Oakland movie that did not get nominated, um, which really upsets me. Um, Boots Riley's movie, Sorry to Bother You. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that bothers me a lot less than blind spotting. I thought blind spotting yeah, was blind great, spotting. but but you know, the I tell you, there was more. I think there was more of an awards push for Sorry to Bother You than for blind spotting. I didn't get a single DVD in the mail for that movie, uh, so they weren't pushing for top ten consideration. And I don't know. I 
I don't really read the trades that regularly, but I didn't see a big push uh, for it for uh, best actor and definitely for best supporting actor. That would have been really possible and best screenplay and what? Yeah, so they, they were, that was a great movie. And Black Panther counts as an Oakland movie yeah, in this yeah, totally. conversation? Oh, I mean, it's directed by an Oakland yeah. native, so why not? But and it was shot in scenes, Atlanta. Scenes from Oakland uh, in there. Scenes from Oakland with quotes, yeah. No, My I understanding mean, really, was, though, is that the Oakland footage was actually not shot in Oakland. Am I wrong on that? That it no, was shot it was in Atlanta? Atlanta? But, I mean, but they had Oakland in big letters, and they really, um, well, it was hella Oakland to me. And I wonder about that. And, and... You know, this idea of them snubbing that. I mean, do you think there's even an attempt this year to really be more diverse? I, th- I think with uh, Regina King's nomination for If Beale if Bill Street Could Talk. Mm-hmm. Um, have you guys seen that film? Yeah. I think I think that's an attempt, and I think she could win. Yeah, um, I think she, she's I a think really she's great contender. Win, yeah. okay. I, think, I think so, too. Oh, you, you say she is going to win? I, yeah. I think she's going to win, yeah. I mean, it's possible that... Rachel Weisz could win. It's oh, she already has one. Yeah, but she already has one. And then uh, there's another one who has a. Po- oh, yeah, actually, you know, I was looking at some odds, and and Amy Adams is is on the rise, which I find amazing because to me that's a pretty lackluster role in Vice. Um, but no, I think it's going to be Regina King. I mean, it's a small role, but she's really great in like the three big scenes in the movie. So, tell me something good. I want to do what? I mean, we haven't talked about A Star is Born yet. No, yeah, let's talk about A Star is Born. I mean, we kind of touched on Lady Gaga and everything. But I, I can't. That's the only one I haven't seen of the best pictures. What? Oh, it's fine. Oh, I saw it twice. Once for you. Oh, you didn't? I thought you didn't like it. Yeah. I didn't want to see a remake of a remake of a remake. Of a, you t- of a remake. This is, this is either the fourth or the fifth version of yeah. it, if you count fourth. No Price, fourth, Holly, right? What Price Hollywood, yeah. which came yeah. out in the 30s. Yeah, that's, and it, it's, it is kind of a fifth remix. Yeah, a well, fourth remake. But it's very closely in ways that um, I think Bradley Cooper acknowledged almost a remake of the Streisand Christofferson version, which was um, originally authored by Joan Didion and uh, John Gregory Dunn, the, especially the rock and roll setting of it. And I think it's a far, oh, God help me for saying this, but I think it's a far superior version, certainly, to Barbara's earlier oh. film version. Yes. So That is, is not a knock against Barbara, by the way. <laughs> I want Bradley Cooper to perform that song with her. Shallow? Yes. Yeah. It, 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 you saw? They did wow. it in Vegas? A surprise. Yeah, it was awesome. Okay, oh, she pulled so, him onto the stage, yeah. I guess, as well. That's nice. Do you guys want to do it right now? <laughs> what is... <laughs> I mean, I'm totally down. <laughs> All right, I'm afterwards. Kind of the it's it's uh, when you... You know, the, the, the problem with the, the Stars Born formula, they, they figured out something in the 50s. I don't think the 1936 movie is particularly very good with Janet Gaynor, except for Frederick March. He's great in the movie. Mm-hmm. But they figured out in the 50s that you could put a real powerhouse uh, singing star... And they did that with Judy Garland, and they've done it ever since, Barbara Streisand and Lady Gaga. The, the thing that they did with the new innovation that they did in 76 and that they've kept at Bradley Cooper is that the guy is also uh, a singing, you know, he's a, he's a rock star or something. And the problem with that a little bit is that if you're going to wreck your career for, because you're an alcoholic or a drug addict and you're in the movies, 
it's really easy to do. You just don't show up a few times, you can't get insured, your career is over. But if you are in pop music and you want to wreck your career by being a drug addict or an alcoholic, I mean, you have to like get up every morning like to a hot steaming bowl of toxic waste and then just keep going. I mean, so basically Bradley Cooper at the beginning of that movie, he's practically falling down. You know, he's practically just falling down already. And it, it kind of diminishes a character in a way to be that messed up from the very start of the movie. It kind of like dims him a little bit of, as a romantic prospect, although he's so good looking, I guess it doesn't. Um, anyway, yeah, he's still good looking no matter how drunk he was on that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will say one of the things about the, since the 50s, the versions of A Star is Born that I think is especially powerful is the way they've traded on the iconography of these three singing actresses and referenced their own personal struggles and careers. I mean, the case with the Judy Garland version in 1954, they very much um, trade on what was publicly known at that point about Judy's own difficulties, um, except in the character of her husband, who was played by James Mason in that version. The way they reference Gaga's own career in this version of A Star is Born with her showing up later on Saturday Night Live, with her changing her hair color, uh, with her doing more dance-inspired music, was a little problematic for me because it seemed almost like Bradley Cooper was being dismissive of Lady Gaga's um, person, like allure as a pop star. But overall, I think it was in many ways the most compassionate film version of A Star is Born that I'd seen. They really try and get to the origin of what the, the male leads um, drug and alcohol problems are in the movie in a way that I thought was very sensitively done. And so, ergo, when the inevitable tragic conclusion happens, I think you feel more sympathy for that character and you feel more of a sense of triumph for the female character who has to overcome the grief. What other movies you didn't watch you want to talk about? <laughs> I, I saw all the Best Picture nominees. Um, I was kind of upset that uh, the Mr. Rogers documentary wasn't nominated. Yeah, I mean, I mean that made me cry. I mean that man was so yeah. pure. Yeah, I, I was hoped that was nominated. And then Eighth Grade. I just thought that was a f fantastic film. Did you see it? Yeah, I, I wasn't in love with it. I thought it was. I thought it was a good movie, but it wasn't. I can't. It, it didn't strike me as one of the best. Eighth grade. What? 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 Were you ever in eighth grade? Not only was I in eighth grade, but when I, but when I finished eighth grade, in the summer of eighth grade, I wrote a 300-page account of my handwritten account of my experience in eighth grade, which I still have. Yeah, it was it was it was traumatic, ultimately triumphant, but traumatic. So that didn't. Oh man, just from. Yeah, so I, I had I had a lot of expectation because I'm kind of a big. Eighth Great obsessive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I really, I really wanted to see that do well. But you know, the films that I like don't ever. I mean, for instance, I'm still. I want Spike Lee to win a yeah. Best Director role. I thought Inside Man was a great film too. Oh, I uh, loved Inside Man. Inside Man's a great yeah. movie. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I just. Um, no, I, one thing after another. I mean, he he makes some bad movies too, but and yes. but. It, his bad, he's interesting when he's bad because he's bad the way he's good, only this time it's bad. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, what's wrong? It's just like a Spike Lee movie, only it's bad this time. Um, this is, no, I, I, Black Klansman is a, is a really good movie and it, what's 
fascinating about it is how important that coda is to the whole movie because it uh, just kicks it into another zone. I mean, because it's already pummeling you and then it, it, you know, it brings it to the present. Um, I think Adam Driver has a chance to win. He did a good job. Yeah. I, I do too, but it's yes. very problematic for me that um, the, the lead actor, Denzel Washington's son, uh, David Wash- John David Washington, John David Washington, was not nominated. Uh, you know, you don't really have a film called Black Klansman unless you have, I don't know, a Black Klansman. He was the title character and he didn't get nominated. It, that was problematic for me in that category. The thing is, is that in that, you know, it's possible he was sixth. You know, there's like eight or nine nominees for, for best, best picture. And it's very possible that he came in sixth or seventh, you know, in the voting. And would be if it was a bigger category. Um, yeah, it, that's, a, that's a really serious movie. That would be, that would be a, if people want to do like the political statement, it would be better to go with Black Klansmen than with Roma. But I think they are going to go with Roma. I, I think better Black Klansman than Black Panther as well. Yeah, oh yeah, I agree. I hope there's some actual political statements in the acceptance speeches. I mean, I miss the days when they would just get up there and let loose. Like, you know, I believe we have to save the whales, and all of you are complicit in not doing it. Does anyone remember the Sachin Littlefeather incident? Oh, bring, where is she? Bring her back. She was great. I hope somebody sends Sachin in their place to accept the award again this year. That would thrill me. I hope it's Lady Gaga, quite frankly. But I hope she still does the red carpet and wears something different for the performance. Then my job is a lot easier. Yeah. But if they do get political, I hope they don't get maudlin because they used to, when they used to get political, they would say things that were crazy and outrageous. People would say, what? What did you just say? It would be like that. But these days, like I was just watching the Golden Globes, everybody... I mean, it, it, it almost got as banal as, you know, everybody, somebody standing up there and saying, and I really think everybody should love each other, and that's what I think, and damn it, I, I think everybody should love each other, and I'm leaving. It's like, oh, well, that, you know, nobody's going to disagree with that. It was like just a series of, of, of statements that was like so preaching to the converted, it's not going to convert anybody. I, I hope the cinematographers get political now that they got their award back on the broadcast. They should. Yeah. I don't, I really, I don't think anyone's going to be political. Well, because of um, Jesse Smollett. I mean, I really think the backlash, you know, the pylon, you know, the internet trolls um, are going to be so vicious if, a, if a, someone stick, takes their t- time to stick up for anyone there. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's indicted now. I mean, so we went from, you know, all these Hollywood types and politicians defending this man, and now you find out that uh, more likely than not, it's a hoax. I mean, yeah, it's just we got a pretty good idea. <laughs> yeah, we got a pretty good idea. Okay, so here's my dream political scenario: Lady Gaga gets the Debbie Allen dancers to back her up during her song, and that they're all non-binary, trans, gender fluids, and that they all wear T-shirts that announce that. And then it's also a fashion story. Yeah. There you go. This is cheaper. Do you think that having no host at this year's show is going to change the experience at all? Well, first of all, let me say I'm thrilled Kevin Hart is not hosting after his incredibly problematic comments. Problematic, by the way, is the word we now use when we want to say shitty. Um, 
after all of his terrible comments that he made on Twitter and in his stand-up about how he would like break a dollhouse over his son's head if his son uh, appeared to be gay or effeminate in any way. So thank God we nipped that one in the, in the bud, quite frankly. Um, I'm hoping that Whoopi Goldberg might just show up at the last minute and be like, I'm here, hey. I loved Whoopi. Or, or we could do a Billy Crystal cameo. Or maybe bring all the alums. It's like... Or the cast of Pose, perhaps, if we really oh, want to strike go. it good with the LGBT community. That, that is, it, it's a thankless gig. It, it's a terrible gig. And, and it's gotten really bad since they left the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, where when somebody would be able to do a monologue and everybody else, the whole audience was in darkness. So you can make a joke about somebody and laugh. And without checking in with the person's reaction, because it just makes everybody watching at home really uncomfortable. It's like, and imagine in the audience, it's like immediately somebody makes a joke about somebody, goes to a close-up of that person, and if they're not smiling, everybody says, oh, that joke went over the line. Oh, they are so rich. They should all be smiling no matter how much anybody <laughs> talks about them. Like, blah, blah, sure. blah, joke about Tom Cruise. You have half a billion dollars, and you're still working. Smile and take the joke, Tom Cruise. <laughs> You know, it's it's like a performance, right? You know, you got to be rigid. I'm serious. I mean, this is my craft. <laughs> but you know, sometimes it's it's well, also act bad. like you're amused. Well, sometimes it's bad. Like it's bad if it's funny and they're not laughing. But sometimes it's bad if it's not funny and they are laughing to be a good sport, and then everybody looks stupid. <laughs> okay, so, so can I ask bad. who favorite hosts have been going down the line? Wait, what? Who who our favorite Oscar hosts have been in past years? I think that's a really good first date question, by the way. Do you really want to know your, your future if partner? I can't think of one, does that mean there weren't any that, might, that I can? Gosh. That I means know. you vote for no host. Your favorite is this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. There you go. I, I would say that I went back and I started watching some of them just because a lot of them get better in memory. So I watched, uh, he was, this was before my time, but I watched some of the Bob Hope ones and I thought he was horrible. And he was remembered as being really good. Um, I watched Billy Crystal. I, he was good, but he was kind of obnoxious and good and obnoxious and good. He did the singing, right, too? Yeah, yeah he was, I, I like that. He was yeah. okay. The one I thought was the best was Johnny Carson, actually. Because I, I Carson, Carson had a kind of quality of being, like he had like a, a sense of occasion about him, but at the same time, he was, he was actually funny. Um, so I, I thought Carson was pretty good. He did it about three times. If you go on, if you go, this is totally YouTube. I'm not relying off of memory. But, but I, I, if, I think Carson comes off the best uh, in the thing. You like, you like Crystal? Yeah, I really like Billy Crystal. Um, because I like the singing and dancing, too. The host being, you know, multi-talented. It's not just, hey, I'm here for jokes. But, you know, I can actually become part of the set pieces. Yeah. I can agree with that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yep. I was going to be really controversial and say Anne Hathaway and James Franco. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. That was going to be the he's one I said. He's not here, is he? I, I mean, want. he's from the Bay Area. No, I would never endorse somebody that has a Me Too allegation against them. I love Whoopi Goldberg. I wish that... And Whoopi's costume changes. The year that she did a costume from every nominated film... I will never forget that opening. She came out as Queen Elizabeth and said, good evening, I'm the African queen. And just, she, and I just said, okay, great. Give her another Oscar for hosting. I thought it was perfect. That's awesome. That's a, that was a good question. And I think it's a good segue to start getting questions from the crowd, actually. I think y'all are ready. 
you post share your We're thoughts. Share your oh, thoughts. My thoughts on Bohemian Rhapsody. Excuse me for jumping the line here. Oh, but I found, first of all, I find it incredibly problematic to tell stories of real, again, we know what that word stands in for. I, do, I did not care for the fact that this was a film that really seemed to straightwash a lot of Freddie Mercury's life and seemed to suggest that if he had just stuck with that girl, things might have turned out better for him. He'd be uh, alive is the idea. That's, that's, that's oh, what it seemed like, yeah. Oh, and I'm sorry, I, I think Rami Malek is a great actor, but there is something for me now in 2019 that rings incredibly inauthentic about having heterosexual performers play real-life queer people. It's, we, we do not have cisgendered people playing trans parts anymore, and in this particular case, it bothered me. It's a personal opinion. I know a lot of people will disagree with me on that one, but as a gay man, I feel that a gay man should have played that part. All of you are. Yeah, I, I as a non-gay man, <laughs> I thought it was a wonderful performance. But um, I'm still so angry at the film because if you go to a movie and it's playing next door, all you hear is Bohemian Rhapsody music. <laughs> and so, you know, for weeks, I'm just been like, damn, can they just stop playing it? For me, it was definitely like going to a concert. I think I watched it shortly after watching A Star is Born, and that also felt like going to a concert. And I, I'm, I love going to live music, and so both... Both of those films I really enjoyed watching for the entertainment factor. But certainly, like, when you go layer by layer by layer. And honestly, Tony, I didn't even think about that when I, mm-hmm. when I watched I do, I do agree. And I'm like, huh. Now, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm a straight woman. I, I do agree so. with Tony, though. Yeah. Lip sync for your life on RuPaul, frankly. Like, I also don't lo- love performances about performers where the person is not doing, if it's a movie about a dancer, I think that they should do their own dancing. And this was a film about a singer, and it was all lip syncing. So it's not RuPaul's Drag Race. Lip syncing doesn't win for me. Yeah, wasn't that your issue too? Well, it it doesn't, I I don't mind that he lip syncs. I mean, you know, it's Freddie Mercury. Nothing is going to be as good as that. Uh, But when you're talking about, you know, a singing role being nominated for an Academy Award, it's something to consider that maybe it should be somebody else. I, I, I liked the movie. I thought it was a good movie. I didn't think it was a great movie. I did think this, those things, I, I, I did think some of those things, that the movie is, is basically saying that if he just stuck with the woman, he'd be alive and, and isn't it a shame and all that. I think that was a kind of almost... Yeah, I think that was in the movie. I, I will say that what I've since read about Freddie Mercury is that he really was, apparently he was attached as attached to that woman as, as uh, they say, and he left her all his money and all that stuff. I, as, a, as a straight man, it doesn't bother me to, it doesn't bother me, it's, of course it's not, it's not up to me to decide, but if uh, straight actors play gay people, I just say there's a time-honored tradition of gay actors playing straight people for like entire careers. And, uh, and 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 because how many gay roles you know, were available minds, to them, Mick? Really. I'm sure a lot of those gay actors would have loved to have played gay parts, but it was 1940, and they were technically classified as mentally ill by the government at that point. I, still, I think that is is valid. That yes, but you know, lot, there are a lot more gay actors in their gay parts, at least. Uh, but what 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 Tony was saying earlier is that there is still a problem in Hollywood where um, 
stories of people, non-white people or non-cisgendered people have still need the attention of the people that, you know, are, who are in this story. And I, I really think in this case, similarly, the Green Book would have done well to have more of a representation or understanding of the representation of the actual book and the actual hotels on that circuit. So, um, I, I mean, he looked good in the... <laughs> I, I really think he played the role was great, but you know. questions up here in the front. In light of you, what you said this evening about um, your ideas about the Roma film, can you f- or don't you think it would be a fair to the public to amend your original? critique because because every Sunday it's appearing in the pink section and you're wrongly encouraging people to see that awful movie. <laughs> oh no, now we have to run a correction. In the <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I think this is more something for the editors to decide. I I don't know what our policy is. I mean, I would, I, would, I would not give it a bad review. I would just keep the little man exactly as I said it, but I would change the little man to a uh, little man interested. Do you think that that would be a good thing to do or not a good thing to do? I feel that, okay, so here is my editor's cap on, and I think that your, your, your initial reaction should be what's on record. I think I it's think okay so to, to change your mind. People change their minds all the time. But I, I think at the time that you wrote it and the time you rated it, that's the true to the rating. I think, I think so, too. And the truth is I haven't seen it since. I mean, part of my, my dislike, of my, my growing dislike of the movie is, is partly, and I think you can understand this, is, is so many people saying how much they love it. Right. You know, it's like it's like you 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 when you when you like something in it when you grudgingly like something you say all right that's okay I'm willing to say it's okay and then everybody starts chiming in about how it's the most wonderful thing that they've ever seen and it starts getting nominated for all these awards it has a tendency of having a reverse reaction you know maybe I, that's how I it works with the Academy I feel that voters. way about um, Shallow the song I liked it a lot I sang it all the time after I watched the movie and then all of a sudden it's like on every station it's on the TV all the time they're winning all these awards and I'm like you know I feel like there were better songs in other years that should have gotten more attention too I don't know yeah I mean I like it but again it's like I don't love it as much as I, I know now I'm like I'm actually really bummed by the fact that the Mary Poppins song that was nominated. Not, I know we disagree on on that movie. I liked it. You did not. The Mary Poppins Returns. I thought the song they nominated was the worst one out of that whole film. Which one is that? Um, where the lost things oh, yeah, yeah. find them. I don't. It was. It was a bad song. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there yeah. were there were three other songs in that that I thought were great. Although we do get Bette Midler singing it at the Oscars, which is another reason for me to try and remain yeah. awake once I do my fashion story. The place where lost things go is it, even the title's a downer. We got a question back there. Okay, oh, I've got a loud voice. Um, I find it kind of ironic that I'm here and Mick kind of ironic that we're doing this year because you're actually the person that woke me to the Oscars years ago 
when you pointed out that the Oscars don't really nominate the best movies of the year, and you've talked for years about actors or actors who could have been nominated or movies, that the Oscars are more a uh, depiction of what Hollywood's thinking about itself at the time. Yes, yes. And so I, I don't think of them the way I used to. I was used to be obsessed with the Oscars and what the best pictures were. And now I realize they don't even nominate the best pictures half the time, or actors or actresses. So now that I think of it just as a, a snapshot of what Hollywood's thinking of itself at this moment in time, what are you thinking that Hollywood's thinking about itself these days? And, I, and by the way, I loved Roma. I saw it twice. I thought it was lyrical. Wow. All because I'm Latin. I love seeing a depiction of Latin people like I like seeing a depiction of gay people. So, I like seeing depictions of me on screen. I loved Roma. Very but now good. back I hope, to my question. I, I hope all you lowbrows feel ashamed by this endorsement <laughs> of uh, Roma. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's hard to say what is Hollywood thinking itself based on a list of nominees or even if I knew who, who won because these things take years. Uh, but what the Academy Awards, the value of the Academy Awards historically, I think, is, is a, it, is, it is as a record of what people thought was good at the time. And in a way, it, in a way it's inevitably a record of, um, of misconception, you know, it, it, in a way, it's that. It's, it's, it's like this is what people happen to be thinking because, you know, a, a consensus at any point is just an average of, of uh, good and bad opinion. And that's kind of what the Academy is. Everything shakes down in the end. Usually 40, 50 years go by and you know really what's good. And, and to, me that's a, to me, that's interesting. So what we're doing right now is we're doing Academy Awards that should be very interesting to people who are 40 or 50 years from now. Which, you know, is probably not me. I also want to say, like, what's Hollywood thinking about itself right now? This is a tremendously interesting moment to be asking that question. We are still very much in the midst of Me Too and Time's Up and a lot of other discussions going on about diversity and representation. Uh, I wonder if what we see at the awards will, um, in terms of who wins, will encapsulate that in the way that I think the nominees maybe two years ago um, encapsulated a problem with representation. I'm pretty sure that in the pink this week, you mentioned the films you thought should have been nominated. You can repeat that if you want, but I'd like to hear what the other people up there think should have been nominated for Best Picture that oh. wasn't. Yeah, yeah. There was a list of just in different categories, like who would you give it to if you, if you were running the world and, and why aren't you and all that. Um, I, my favorite movie of the year was Fox Lux. I thought that was a great movie, and I think you know it's a movie that's made less than a million dollars at the box office, but I think will be emerge as an important movie as time goes on. It's, it's made by a guy who's 31 years old, and, the, and the, the voice is very much that of somebody who you know, just really came of age in this century. Um, and then th there are a lot of other things. I mean, I, I, I think Dominic West or Raphael Casal were both great supporting actor candidates in their respective movies. Dominic West was in Colette. He's absolutely amazing in it. Really, he's great. Um, and Raphael Casal is terrific in Blind Spotting. And uh, there's a few others, but the, the big one is Vox Lux, except with a movie like Vox Lux. And this is what you were talking about, like, you know, like what, you know, what is the kind of thing that gets nominated? And 
I knew that that wasn't going to get nominated when I saw it. I mean, I knew that there wasn't a chance on earth. I mean, not not even not remotely because it's not the kind of movie that that appeals to Academy voters, and it's not the kind of movie that the Academy really wants to endorse. So I'm not surprised. I'm not even displeased. Uh, it's just it's just the way it is. It's like being it's like being upset about gravity. You know, it's just it, it, we live with this. It's reality, and there's no point in being sad about it. No, not, not the film, just the actual gravity, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go back to eighth grade because um, it really, to me, captured a time when we all feel insecure and well, or it, it really speaks to who we become, um, whether we you know, crawl into a shell or whether we blossom. And um, that, that really touched me because I think it's something all of us have felt the insecurity of being young and trying to impress your peers and, you know, being bullied, being taunted, and um, watching this little girl, especially in this moment of Me Too, I felt that was very powerful. And I really related to a character in a way um, that just made me pull for her. Um, But again, that wasn't a big film um, at at all. And so, I mean, that's my favorite movie of the year, but I don't, and how many people have seen eighth grade in here? That's oh, pretty good, actually. I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah. I'm not going to say so, just because I'm Asian American doesn't mean that's why I like crazy rich Asians. Um, and, I, and I'm not actually upset that it didn't get, you know, under uh, Best Picture, but it was a really good movie that should have been represented a little bit better, I think, along uh, somewhere scattered around the nominations yeah. for sure. I actually brought up Colette. I thought um, Colette was an incredibly interesting screenplay, and I thought Dominic West's performance was fantastic. I, however, am deeply saddened by the fact that Cher did not get nominated for her four lines and Mamma Mia 2 shut off the musical. (laughs) Did you notice, by the way, that she only moved twice in that film? I think (laughs) that helicopter that they brought her in on was also getting her to hit her marks in it. I think that her contract said... I will do this movie, I want one song, and I don't want to have to hit any marks. You're going to move me. No choreography. Yeah. She's really good in burlesque. You know, that was a real role. She was good in that. I think she should have gotten two Oscars for Moonstruck. All right, we have a question. So um, we're talking about best actresses, and so this is sort of a multi-part question. Mostly toward Mick, but I'd be curious about other people's reactions, and that is, what are your thoughts about the Best Actress Oscar curse? Uh, do you really think Marisa Tomei's name was read wrongly? And because there's that scandal, and why Glenn Close? That was supporting actress, right? From Marisa Tomei? Marisa, Marisa supporting actress. I don't know. What is the Best Actress curse? I don't know about it. Oh, so supposedly, if you get a Best Actress uh, Oscar, then for several years, you're, you're not, basically, you're not given any roles. Well, you know, you know what it really is, is it? It's it's not the best actress curse. It's just a visible manifestation of the actress curse. Uh, it is very common for actresses to get a good role maybe once every five years in the United States. Uh, you know, unless you're Meryl Streep. <laughs> yeah, unless you're Meryl Streep or Kate Blanchett. In fact, when I was in, I was writing a book uh, with, I was interviewing French actresses for a book I was writing and. And uh, whenever they talked about the United States, they'd say, oh, it's really great for women in the United States. And, they, and I'd say, why do you think so? And they'd always say, oh, look at Kate Blanchett. Look at Meryl Streep. It was, it was the only two people they knew. Uh, 
And Kate Blanchett's not American, and I don't know with Meryl's, that accent changes so quickly. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, the, the thing about, you know, Hollywood actresses and who works in the United States, they think of England and Australia and the United States as being one big country. Uh, New Zealand, to throw that one into Canada. Um, but anyway, I, no, I, th- I think it's, it's the reason why you don't work very much is that, is that actresses don't really get that many great roles, opportunities. You always know, you can always guess who's going to be nominated for Best Actress with a fair degree of certainty because it's usually five performances that are chosen out of the eight or so possible movies that, that had roles good enough where you could be nominated. Whereas with men, it's much more. And, and that's how it works. That's why. But you only notice it because it's like, oh, she just won an Oscar and what happened to her? She disappeared five years. She would have disappeared anyway. She just got lucky once. If I may comment on that, too, um, some of that has to do with problems that have happened in actresses' personal lives following the Academy Awards. Not to say that they get an Oscar and then their personal lives go to hell, but Sandra Bullock did have a very bad breakup right after she won her Oscar for that football movie that's name is totally escaping me. Blindside. Yes. um, Did not care for that one as much as I love Sandy. Um, And then Holly Berry chose to do Catwoman following her Academy Award, which you gave a somewhat positive review to, by the way. I did, yeah. Which I enjoyed. I think you... Mick, you were woke before we knew what woke was. You did describe it as a feminist film, and I don't disagree with that assessment. It was sort of a feminist movie. Um, So I think the best actress curse is sometimes a result of the fact that there are not a lot of great roles, like Mick was saying, and also just bad choices frequently afterwards. Jennifer Lawrence certainly hasn't been cursed. No. Kate Winslet, Kate Kate Blanchett. The Kates all do very well when they win Oscars. One of my favorite films of the year, actually. Thrilled that she was nominated. Lee Israel really was a hell of a good writer. Look up her work in the New York Times archives if anyone is curious, or look up the book that it's based on. Uh, and I think that Melissa McCarthy absolutely, I wish that she would write in as the dark horse uh, this year. Do we think there's any chance of that happening? Ah, uh, no. If it happened. <laughs> If it happens, it would be great. But also, I'm breaking my own rule because she's not a lesbian and she played a gay character. So, (laughs) so see, there's some flexibility. I I I think consistency is is actually not even a good thing. It's not even a virtue. Yeah, I I don't I don't I I don't I always feel happy to change my mind about anything. We have a question over there. Yeah, my question is about nominations for best actor actress versus supporting actor actress. How was that decision made, particularly with Green Book, for example? Like in terms of like uh, historical patterns? Yeah. Seems like it's kind of arbitrary who's nominated for best versus supporting. Oh, they get oh submitted that. for different categories. Yeah. It 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 is arbitrary. What they do is they they position it based on uh, what they think would have a better chance of winning. I think in the case of Olivia Coleman. Who you can argue you can argue any of those three women as the star of the movie. They I think they operated first on the assumption that you we can't have we can't have two of them nominated in the same category, or else we're going to lose. So we'd say okay, well then let's. But but it was like this. They I think this is this okay. I don't know anything for a fact. This is my guess. They thought Olivia Coleman was the best one in the movie, and they thought she'd have the best shot of winning something. 
They also knew that the other two women were really good, and you can't nominate one of them without nominating the other because then they'd get mad. I'm talking about pushing, pushing in the pushing for them to get nominated by the studio. So I think they decided to take the two that they thought weren't going to win and shove them into the same category and then push Olivia Coleman, figuring that it might be a weak field this year. And I think they almost had a winning strategy, but I think that it switched to going close in the last month. But they almost did it. But it's really arbitrary. Just like, you know, Idi Amin is definitely in a sense, the supporting role in The Last King of Scotland because the star of the movie is actually the guy who has to deal with Idi Amin. But, you know, they, they said there's going to be a weak year. Forrest Whitaker is going to win something, so let's put him up for best actor because, you know, we think he's going to win. So that's how it works. It's a, it's a political calculation to some degree, a cynical calculation. I think that um, studios and whoever's putting up these nominations like have learned from some of the big historic mistakes of the past. 1950, the year that Judy Holliday won the upset in the Best Actress category, she was nominated against Gloria Swanson for Sunset Boulevard and two actresses for All About Eve, Betty Davis and Ann Baxter. And one of the beliefs has often been that the two All About Eve actresses kind of split the vote and it allowed Judy Holliday, who gives a wonderful performance in that movie, by the way, to come in, though, and overtake that category. So I think they are being more considerate about not harming their own films by, by submitting and, and uh, by double submitting in a category, if you will. I, I think the way it should be done is this. Somebody, if somebody is like the condition that the other person has to live with, then they are, by definition, the supporting category. What I mean is like Idi Amin does not change. He stays the same. And Baxter, in a sense, stays the same, even though externally she changes as far as other people are concerned in All About Eve. The person who undergoes the journey in that movie is Betty Davis. And Baxter should have definitely been nominated for supporting actress. Yeah, I think the thinking on that, too, was that she was the title character. So sometimes that gets... And also, Edie Amin was the... No, wait, is he the last king of Scotland? I don't remember that movie. Yeah, he's the last yeah. king of I mean, like, metaphorically, we know he wasn't actually the king of Scotland. <laughs> Oh, well, it's, it's, it's really... I'm sorry, what, it, what about Green Book? Because I feel yeah. like those two characters are really... And they both have a transformation. Yeah. I think in this case, in the case of Green Book, then it just goes to, like, who has the most lines. And in that case, it, it, the movie follows Viggo Mortensen slightly more than it follows Mahershala Ali. Just a little bit more. Not much more, but a little bit more. Problem with Don Shirley's family is uh, that uh, the character is made to believe that he's disconnected from his family, that he has no one, which wasn't the case, and that's why his family is so upset by the film. So the the movie, uh, the, the the filmmakers chose the white character to base it around or to be the vehicle through the through the film, and I think that's why another reason why it's you know we discussed it's been it was problematic. Yeah, Tony Lip's son wrote the screenplay, so. Can we talk about one of my favorite categories for a second, best costume design? I wanted to be on record that if Bruce E. Carter does not win for Black Panther, that I am staging a protest out in front of Academy headquarters. There were no better costumes in this in film this year, as far as I'm concerned. And nobody said the favorite to me because it was not 
quite frankly, those costumes were neither historically accurate 100% nor inventive enough not to be historically accurate. So I'm, I'm with Black Panther on that one. Go, Oakland. <laughs> Okay, and then, we'll go and then, oh. Okay, it's like this. So, you know, we do this in some of our elections. Explain ranked voting is the question. So, as I understand it, it's, they add up all the, the, the number, the uh, choices for number one, and then if, I, it, it, under certain circumstances, I guess if they don't get more than 50%, or, I forgot how it is, but then they go to number two, they, they take everybody's second choices, and then, if necessary, they go to number three, and they just keep on going until somebody wins. But I forget what I forgot what winning consists of. But that's how it's done. So as a result, you, it, if you have something that, if you have a very tight race, but you have something that people are voting against, they'll make sure that they put, let's say, Roma at the bottom, or Boyhood. That was another one. Boyhood was supposed to win. So if you didn't want Boyhood to win, you put it at the bottom, so that vote will never be counted. Whereas, let's say, a lot of people like Boyhood, like Birdman second, right? So if you put a lot of, if Birdman gets a lot of second votes and gets all the second votes, it could very well win. So that's like that. I know that's not a very good explanation. Is some of this to avoid the tie situation that happened in 1969 with Streisand and Catherine Hepburn? Is that why we have ranked voting? No, now? because we don't have ranked voting in that category. Oh. We only have it. Yeah, it, it's actually possible to win Best Actor or Best Actress or Supporting or any of the other categories with just 21% of the vote, conceivably, if, if in a really tight race. But for Best Picture, I guess they just thought there's too many nominees we can't let somebody win with 14% of the vote. It would be ridiculous. So that's how they, they do it. So it has to get up to 50 somehow, but I don't know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In, influ campaigns. She was asking about if the studios have any influence on, uh, on the films that win. And we all agree yes. <laughs> well, I mean, one, I'll give you one little way is that they make sure that they deluge people with DVDs. In all seriousness, I got like four DVDs of Crash. I'm not in the Academy. But in 2005, that indicated to me that these people are serious. They take ads out. They, you know, they, they, have, they have meet and greets. They do, you know, they do a lot of different things like that. The trade papers have, have so many ads this time of year, yeah. even online. Every pop-up on Variety or The Hollywood Reporter at the moment seems to be vote for this. Yep. Um, we are if you pick up the paper on Friday, we have a Q&A story with the director of Lifeboat. It's a short uh, documentary nominated this year for the Oscar. And he straight up said that if I, um, he was so happy that he paid for a publicist for this film because it finally got the recognition he believes his other films should have gotten. And so, you know, he finally was like, all right, I'm going to buy in. Social media has also been an interesting phenomenon the last few years in watching award shows, how um, social media campaigns and, and I feel like targeted advertising on social media for Academy members um, is starting to become a thing. I mean, it's, we can thank Silicon Valley for that. <laughs> They're now influencing the Oscars too, potentially. Which still surprised me that um, Crazy Rich Asians did not get enough <laughs> nominees this year. Anyway, <laughs> we got a question yeah, over there. Question. And actually, you know, I do want to remind everybody to wait for the mic for the question so we can pick it up on audio here. I was curious what you thought about the ballad of Buster Scruggs. Because when I saw it, I was so not expecting it to be as wonderful as I thought it was. 
and I wouldn't mind if it won be for best song for when a cowboy trades his spurs for wings, just because I'm tired of the overexposure. <laughs> Thank you. No, I thought that was wonderful. And it was so fun to watch because of how short those spurts were. And man, that was fun. Yeah, I, I thought it was a good movie. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to find the, I'm beginning to find the the Coen brothers, not boring because they're not they're, the movies are always entertaining. But I'm beginning to find them a little bit philosophically boring, because they're so pessimistic and they're pessimistic in this, in a kind of almost reflexive and 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 um, predictable way. It's getting to the point. So and so I was with that movie, and then when. When uh, oh I don't I, I guess I don't want to give away anything, but when um, Zoe Kazan ends up the way Zoe Kazan ends up at the end of her segment, I was just like throwing up my hands saying, oh, "Oh come on guys, you know give me a break with this." So because I, I it's movie after movie, it's it's always the same point of view, and it, know, I'm not enjoying it. I feel like they're folksy in like a negative way, if that is <laughs> such a thing. I think they're folksy in a very entertaining way. I mean, I just, I'm rewatching Fargo right now on FX. So I'm all, I'm all in on the Coen brothers right now. You got any questions back there? In the middle here? I felt like I, yeah. Okay, two questions. So in, I think it was Sunday, when you talked about Roma, it's like all of these people, or the, the people who get to vote, are, are going to, they'll just, go past the boring parts and then click on to the interesting parts. How do you know how to do that? Because there were lyrical, lovely parts, but it just, finally we got to the point, we said, that's it, we're turning it off. I don't know how you do well, that. Well, a, you and well, you, where you, else yeah. do people read your Well, reviews? you know, it is. it's like you, you click through it, and then if, if you see some violence, you stop, you click through it. <laughs> if people start taking their clothes off, you stop. You, know, it's like, you, can, always, you can always find the good parts. It's, it's very, you know. Uh, I would just say with Roma, if you watch the last hour, it, it's it's pretty good. But the, yeah, <laughs> but 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 the foreign this this is interesting about the foreign film people. Okay, if you want to vote in the foreign film category, you have to go to Academy screenings, you have to sign in, and you have to see all five movies. That means you can't fast forward through Roma because you're seeing it in a theater. And it also means that you are so hardcore about the category of foreign film that you're going to watch all five of those things and probably two or three movies in, you're going to know which one you want to vote for, but you're going to see the other two out of spite just to make sure that you get to vote for the other one. And I cannot imagine sitting through all five foreign films to vote for Roma when you know that Roma's probably going to win Best Picture anyway. So I think that the people who are going to be willing to just glue themselves to a chair and watch, you know, 10 hours of foreign films, I think they're going to vote for Cold War. That's what I think. And then your other question was where to read his... Well, oh, you, you read you, you, Mick you, you, LaSalle. Yeah, yeah, you got to yeah. read Mick LaSalle. Yeah. He'll tell you. Uh, how do you know, how do you know what, what, what's the hour to watch? And it's just you have to, you have to read the Chronicle. It's yeah. just, there's certain steps that must be taken. And I'm glad you guys asked that because I don't know if you have seen, but datebook.sfchronicle.com is our newly vamped uh, website. We launched it in, uh, in the summer, so it's still pretty new, and that's where you can see Michael review. Well, <clears throat> not to push the point, but all this boring talk is boring me, and I have to say I saw Roma five times, and I think it's... 
one of the greatest movies in decades. Thank you. Especially 70 millimeter at the Castro. It was just phenomenal. But I want to ask if anybody saw uh, We the Animals, which I thought was an overlooked, terrific movie. We the Animals, anybody? And then my question is, um, it seems hard for foreign actors to be nominated for Oscars. I mean, there was Sophia Loren and Roberto Benigni, you know, and a few other nominees. But this year, I just thought the best one, I don't know her name, the star of Cold War. Joanna Kulig. Was absolutely terrific. And I think she should have been nominated. And I wonder if you know... Why is it? Is it because they don't see the movies? Is that what it is? Well, yeah, and also because it is, it is sort of our thing, and so you don't want to you know, be giving it away to foreign. If you, if you really want to make it an international thing, it means that mo- you know, probably most of the time somebody from a foreign country would win just by virtue of the fact that it's a, it's a big world. Uh, so I, I think that there's a, it, somebody has to be really amazing to, to even be noticed. Joanna Kulig is somebody I've been watching for years and, and waiting for her to get her breakout role. And, and boy, did she ever get it. But can I, can I ask the group a question? Because how many people in this room have seen Roma? Okay, that's a lot of people. Okay, now put your hands down. How many, that's almost, that's like, I'd say about 80% for those listening at home. Okay, of the people uh, who've seen Roma, how many people think that Roma is either very good or great? Oh. That's still pretty they, impressive. That, no, that's, that's very, you've shown amazing restraint. Yeah, okay. How many people think that it's, it's uh, so-so or, or boring? It's about 50-50, I would say. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Yeah, so the, what was many, asked is how many have watched it at home? Instead of in the theater. Yeah, how many people who thought it was so-so or boring uh, watch it on on uh, TV or on, or, on a, or on a computer? And how many people who thought it was great watched it in the movies? Oh, no, that's, that's still... There's some people who yeah. watched it on a computer and I thought mean, it was great. Okay, so, yes, I think the big screen enhances it, but I think a good film is a good film. Yeah. You know, where, whatever screen you watch it. I, my, I really feel that Roma's just getting this huge advertising push to the point now where it's it it's like covered the market so it's like the only option almost is it at the this point. of movies yes yes <laughs> yes exactly yes every christmas i'm like shen young like yes i was just wondering if it was a shen yun of of movies yes. <laughs> yes you know every year you see it and it's just Blanket at the city, yes, and filling up my mailbox, yes. Yeah. How do they nominate the films? And I, I've got to say, Otis Taylor, you're one of the first columnists I read when you're in the Chronicle. Let that be known. But I will disagree with you. I think blind spotting is much better than Black Klansman. Even though I can't believe that the alley on Grand Avenue would need a bouncer. Oh, yeah, right? <laughs> People who are live in Oakland know what I'm talking about. You know, okay, so I... Back to the question. How do they get nominated? I think Blindspotted should have been nominated. No, it, nobody pushed it. There was just no campaign for it. No money. Yeah. No, no it money. It didn't have the Netflix Roma money to get in front of people. Um, but who nominates it? Oh, uh, yeah, the Academy members. 
yeah, in the case of, uh, yeah, the Academy members, I think, I think they do the nominations by division, and then they vote as a body. Uh, so people in the acting division nominate the people who are the five uh, best actors or actresses and things like that. I think it's done that way. Um, but, you know, people are, people are influenced by it because you only have five votes in each category, right? And if you see that you didn't even get a DVD for blind spotting, you're aware it's not going to be nominated. So it's like a waste to just put it down because you know that it's not going to be nominated. I mean, this is the thinking. And so you wind up voting for something else that's maybe your sixth favorite, but maybe has a shot. I think we have time for one more question. So where shall we? I think in the back. We have, did we get anybody in the back? Oh, yeah. Julie. Uh, excuse me, but I'm coming back to Green Book. I mean, how many more years are we going to take the story of an interesting black person and have to put a white person as the protagonist. I mean, we were there in 1950, but, you know, how much longer? Well, it's, I, I think it's the same reason why um, Black Panther was, it, it needed to be successful because you needed to have, and same with Crazy Rich Asians, to show that you didn't need to have a white protagonist. But you're right, Green Book, it's, it's driven literally and figuratively, by a white man. And um, I'm with you. And that detracted a bit about it, but the performances were strong enough that allowed me to get through and actually enjoy the film. But you're right. I went into it. Why is this story being driven by this white male? Why can't it be by this pianist? who? It, who, it was him who sought out the security. And it was this story about um, from performers from Shirley to like Sam Cooke, who you know made it a point um, to go through the South as uh, a point of pride to perform in front of black audiences, but to show whites who were segregationists that you cannot stop me from doing this. And I think that's lost in this, you know, this white man coming of age, you know. And, and I think we need more of that. But yeah, no, ditto. I mean, I don't know if I can say it any better. It's well, it's been your crazy really... rich Asians, you know. Well, Shout I've... out to y'all. <laughs> no, I, I think, gosh, it's been so long. When Moana came out and I saw a brown character, brown girl, like a, a girl in a Disney movie um, who was independent and strong, uh, that resonated to me. And I'm, I'm in my 30s and I was like in love with this Disney movie. It's taken a really long time to be represented on screen. And I don't know if it's going to take another 20 years or something for it to really be a thing where I, I don't know. To not be peripheral or supporting characters, to not be a, to not have a minority or marginalized character that is in service to mm-hmm. a white character. It's, it, you know, across the board, I, in my viewing, I found it to be a slow process. It's a slow process, but I am very thankful to see some representation for sure yes and the next time they make a freddie mercury film a gay actor please uh, and is that it or do we have one more back there sure uh, let's do one more one more oh the, that was the one more but otis we have two uh, more then. in yeah. terms of your coverage of homelessness did you see leave no trace uh, yes i did uh and the emphasis on people who are homeless by choice 
to me, the writing, the directing, some of the acting deserve to be recognized. Why wasn't it? We don't recognize homelessness. And as a, as a community at large, that's one of my big issues. Um, but then also, I think it's kind of unfair because there are people who choose that lifestyle, but a majority don't choose it. And so um, I feel promoting that lifestyle will make our governments do less to help people who are not living on the streets by choice. I think it hurts more than helps their stories. But thank you for bringing that up. That was a good one, yeah. All right. Well, and I know we have so many more questions, but we're going to wrap up, and you guys can talk to us in person down there. Um, And a couple of PSAs. One, (laughs) we have an Oscars poll, our annual datebook uh, Oscars poll is now online, so you can go to datebook.sfchronicle.com and vote as many times as you want, actually. Um, <laughs> so that'll be kind of fun. Uh, also, catch us, uh, LaSalle, uh, Bravo, Tony will, uh, Otis will also be chiming in, I'm sure, on Twitter. We'll be covering the Oscars from our TV screens. Uh, and so tune in on datebook.sfchronicle.com for that as well on Sunday. And then pick up the paper on Monday for our coverage. Thank you so much again for taking your time. Thank you, Great guys. Great questions. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Mari Carmendoza, Otis Taylor Jr., Mick LaSalle, and Tony Bravo, and the Chronicle marketing team who put the event together. Our producer today is King Kaufman and me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Mozart's Symphony 40 in G minor by Blue Dot Sessions. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.